This is the Startup Guide to Growth. Scaling and growing a startup requires marketing, sales, product, talent strategy, and so much more. At Sapphire Ventures, we bring you actionable growth strategies that can help you scale your company with insights and stories from accomplished operators. Ready to grow your company? Then listen up. All opinions expressed by Sapphire and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions or views of Sapphire Ventures, LLC. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes and should not be construed as investment recommendation or otherwise relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Kiki, thank you for joining us. Can you help us out and just let our listeners know a bit of background on yourself? Yeah, hi, my name's Kiki Stannard. I'm Managing Director of Zedra Global Expansion Services. I've been with the business since 2013, initially as a partner of Fitzgerald and Law, and then as Managing Director of Global Expansion when Fitzgerald and Law joined the Zedra Group in 2020. My personal areas of specialism was stemmed from my tax background. My experience has always revolved around people issues from personal tax reporting for high net worth individuals, international assignee programs, equity rewards, payroll and HR. So anything to do with the employer and the employee side of our clients' businesses. Cool. Thank you for the intro there. Can I just ask a bit of color on Zedra and what it does and how it helps to grow companies? Yes, Zedra has really three main pillars of services. First one is funds, pension and trust administration. We also have active wealth, which is dealing with any commercial issues for ultra high net worth individuals. And the third pillar is global expansion services, which is my piece. Zedra currently has businesses in 16 countries and around 750 employees. The global expansion piece provides businesses with the setup and ongoing support on financial, tax, banking, company secretarial, payroll, employee benefits and HR services. So as clients expand into new locations, we're able to support them on all of those areas. When entering the UK market or further afield, are likely to have a good working knowledge or understanding of the local regulatory requirements and practices. So this is where we step in. We quite often partner with our clients to help them gain broad understanding of the issues and local information so that they're going to be able to do business in that location in a, in a learned and educated way. So whether they're starting with one employee or planning a larger scale presence, we can help the client each step of the way to prioritise the support, the setup, the ongoing compliance. So the client focuses on their business knowing that we have all their local requirements and compliance sorted out for them. So these kinds of support services range from sourcing employer liability insurance or workers' comp, registering the business for VAT, or opening a local bank account. Literally anything required to get you started and make the business a little bit easier. I like that. You know, purposes of this chat with you is actually to dive into that in a bit more detail. I wanted to have this discussion because the HR space in Europe is very different and I would say more complicated than 
perhaps a U.S. company might realize. So can you tell us just in Europe, where does Zedra operate? Yeah, we operate in, in most parts of Europe, either through our own local offices or with our uh, third party network partners. I would say that probably the most popular locations would be UK, Republic of Ireland, Germany, France. And I agree that whilst most countries in Europe are within the European Union, some of them have some pretty common EU laws. Most of the employment law and employment practices, tax and other employment requirements are actually very country specific and vary greatly across Europe. So knowledge of what's required in each location is really essential. So as an example, some countries require luncheon vouchers or supplementary health insurance, and others require statutory pension contributions. But each country is very different in regard to its requirements. So you need to know the relevant information of each each country. Right. I think this leads me nicely into what I wanted to dive into with you, which is some of the tactical bits here. So at Sapphire Ventures, we wrote a playbook on where to open in Europe and the locations that we recommended. They align really nicely with what you mentioned. You know, London and Dublin were two of the big cities that we have. And we also included Amsterdam into that for American companies that are moving out to Europe for the first time. But I want to start, let's do it with the UK and how it differs from maybe the US on HR policies. So, you know, unfair question, but I guess what are the three big things that a company needs to know when it comes to the UK versus the US, healthcare, benefits, leave, all that stuff? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. I think the three main areas would be employee benefits, contractual terms, and probably equity. So under benefits, employer liability insurance or workers' comp, as it's called, and pensions are typically mandatory within, say, the UK. Employers are required to contribute at least 3% of salary to a pension and the employee pays 5% to the pension. And whilst we also have a UK National Health Service, which is free at the point of use in most occasions, it tends to be a little bit slower and less flexibility in providing employees with care. So for this reason, most employers would top up to private medical insurance and it's very commonplace, particularly for London-based firms. Typical benefits, I think, for startups in the UK would be the pension and the private medical insurance, possibly some life cover or permanent sickness um, insurance. As the headcount expands, we would often see reward programmes becoming a little bit more sophisticated. So the permanent medical insurance could include the spouse or other dependents and some income protection. There are some also some holistic benefits such as increasing vacation entitlement and also enhancing parental leave allowances. So that's probably it on the benefits side. In terms of contractual terms, the main issue is at-will employment does not exist. In the UK, you are required to give notice when terminating an employment. And this notice period differs from either one week to up to 12 weeks, depending on the length of service of the employee. A local compliant contract is also required in all jurisdictions, just not the UK. For the UK, a contract detailing the basic terms 
needs to be issued on or before the employee's first day of employment. Statutory benefits tend to be more generous than the US. So, for instance, parental policies and vacation entitlement. So vacation, the minimum is 20 days vacation plus eight days public holidays as the minimum. Many employers, we find, enhance that leave allowance from 20 days plus eight to 25 or 30 days plus eight. And of course, our public holidays are on different days than in the US. So we'll be off work for different times of the year. We are seeing quite a few of our clients looking to take on unlimited paid time off to mirror the US setups. It is possible under UK law, but it's important to manage that carefully, caveat certain terms. So statutory holidays, so the 20 plus the 8 is deemed to be used first, and it's not possible to carry over that 20 plus 8. If you're doing unlimited time off, then you need to account for those statutory holidays first so that you pay out any accrued holiday not taken if somebody leaves partway through the year. And then the final third situation is the equity. Employee equities awards are quite commonplace in the UK, either options, restricted stock units, um, employee stock purchase plans. We do have some quite interesting tax efficient plans, which can be relevant for US companies wanting to provide options to UK employees. There are certain conditions attached, so not everyone can qualify for these special tax reliefs, but they're certainly worth exploring and can be very valuable, both for the employee and the employer, because they provide social security exemptions as well. UK has quite an interesting reporting obligation to HM Revenue and Customs in relation to employee uh, equity. So it's worth the business understanding its compliance obligations and reporting. And there are also certain tax elections that can be made with equity. And these are often applicable for equity provided by US businesses. So before you issue any equity to employees, I would always recommend taking some advice. Mm, That's very well put. I always find it interesting when comparing my first role in the U.S. was a 10-day accrued holiday role. And here, the minimum of 20 is really, really a great number to see as an American. However, I know it's for the European, for the U.K. mindset, rather, it's the bare minimum. Let me just ask what this simple question then. Like, what's the biggest mistake, maybe one of the biggest mistakes, rather, that you see when a U.S. company comes to the U.K.? Oh, yeah, that's a really good question. I think one of the biggest mistakes is a little bit of naivety, probably assuming the rules in the UK are the same as the US. And yes, some of the rules are the same, but some of them are different. And what you need to know is which ones are different, because that's really critical. It's a bit like the at-will termination. And you can get yourself into some big trouble if you, you don't do terminations correctly. People have rights and you need to follow that. Probably, again, naivety about maybe having some employees in the UK who aren't on a payroll, maybe treating them as self-employed consultants and not operating any withholding tax. Or if you have individuals who've been assigned from the US to the UK, then just keeping them on the US payroll with US withholding. It is the company's responsibility to comply with the relevant withholding tax and social security 
in the UK. So if you fail to do so, it, it can be costly because the liabilities do fall to the company rather than the individual. As we've mentioned before, firing employees using an at-will employment doesn't apply in the UK. It can have some very costly implications, particularly if the employee has a number of years of service with the company or they are in a protected category. So you have to be very careful not to be discriminatory as well. My advice there is take advice. Don't assume that you know. Don't Google it because that's not always the right answer either. That's a very good point. Do not Google all the stuff. That is why we're here to try to help. Let's move across the Irish Sea to the West. Let's talk about Ireland, Republic of Ireland. Same question as before. How does it differ from the US? And now that we know about the UK, how does it differ from the UK as well? It's again, it's one of these things. There's a whole load of things in, in Ireland that are very similar to the UK because of its history. But there are some items that are, are very different. So unlike the UK, employer liability insurance is not mandatory, but it's always to be advised because you don't want to be liable for employees suing you unnecessarily. And the contract of employment needs to be issued within eight weeks of employment commencing rather than, than immediately. So that's the difference. And the unfair dismissal rights or the rights for the employee to, to sue their employer from fair dismissal is acquired in the UK after two years of service. But in Ireland, it applies after one year of service. So we have to be careful for all of these different time limits and deadlines. Employees in the UK are able to opt out of working time regulations. So if the employee is happy to, they can work more than a 48-hour week. But in Ireland, you're not allowed to opt out of the working time regulations, which means that employees aren't permitted to work more than 48 hours a week on average. And that average is calculated over a four-month period. So you have to be very careful there. The pension is slightly different. There is a, a different type of pension plan. It's in place there and you have to have the pension plan. But then it's not mandatory for the employer to make a contribution. Although we do usually see a matching contribution of about 4 or 5% as part of the overall benefit package. Private medical insurance is quite common in the Republic of Ireland and it has similar enhancements to the UK and is most likely to be used where you've got a growing team. I would say that equity in Ireland isn't particularly tax efficient and there certainly aren't the broad level of tax exemption plans available that there are in the UK. That's a very good point that you make at the end there, because that employee benefit of equity is something to be noted. If you're going to be operating in Ireland, then considering equity as a big part of your package is a very different conversation there because of the tax implications that will occur should there be a, an exit or some sort of opportunity to sell that. And I think I run into that a lot, actually, when we talk to our companies who, when they get close to their exits, their Irish employees have a a fairly in-depth and tricky conversation when it comes to where they're going to be after some sort of exercising. Can I ask on the same side then, what are some of the other mistakes that you've seen when people move to Ireland from the US? Yeah, I think it's assuming that the employment legislation is similar to the UK. It doesn't always apply in the same way in Ireland, even though a number of the rules are very close. So that just makes it a little bit more complicated, just knowing those differences. And I think the biggest mistake is just being caught out by this one year 
for unfair dismissal claims as opposed to two years in the UK. It just changes the process for managing employee performance and dismissal. And I think that you have to just be mindful of that and careful about how long new employees have been working with you, just in case their performance isn't quite there. You might need to make a few decisions in Ireland a bit earlier than you might have otherwise have done if they'd been in the UK. Mm, That's a good point. And I know that the distance between London and Dublin, for example, is only maybe 45 minutes or an hour by plane, similar to the distance of San Francisco and LA, and, and yet so much changes in that quick little jump. So let's make just another one and let's go east. When I wrote the playbook that we had and, and from the interviews that I had, Amsterdam seemed to be a very sizable and interesting location for American companies to move to. There's a couple large companies that are based out there that are American. Whilst it's a Dutch-speaking country, it's filled with a population that's really adept at English. Do you have insights on HR policy there? And, and if they differ at all from the last two locations, or is there anything specific that you know of? Yeah, so I would certainly say that Netherlands is a very popular destination for companies that are expanding globally. And as you say, Netherlands is very much an English-speaking country in terms of the business environment. So it is easy to get along and be able to communicate. Um, The Netherlands employment legislation is very different in that it's dictated by various collective bargaining agreements And these can vary per sector and can change slightly in certain areas, such as required probationary period, uh, for example. Netherlands has 10 public holidays, although, again, these are typically governed by the relevant collective bargaining agreements. So you just need to know exactly what you're doing in relation to your employment sector and also the numbers of employees. Differences also, maternity leave, employees can take pregnancy leave six weeks before the birth and 10 weeks afterwards. And then the mother can also take a full extra six weeks if they want to, if they're unable to take the first six weeks before the birth. And the paternity side, so the secondary carer is allowed to take one week of paid leave after the birth. I think the biggest difference that we see is actually on sick leave. And it's a it's quite a critical point to note in the Netherlands. And this is why many employers would take out short or long-term disability coverage and insurance, that employees can be paid up to 70% of their salary for up to 104 weeks. So for two years, you can be on sick leave and on 70% of salary. So insurance coverage for that is a crucial factor. Other benefits, pensions not mandatory, although it is very typical for this to be to be set up. And contributions quite often vary depending on age, which is unusual these days. Although there is some sign that it's going to change to a flat rate in 2023 of about 12%, with employers paying about two thirds of that. So workers comp, is not mandatory in the Netherlands, although we see most of our clients having that. I think the only other item I would probably mention is assignees in Netherlands. So if you have somebody going to the Netherlands on assignment, they have quite a progressive tax treatment where, broadly speaking, 30% of the compensation can be exempt from the Netherlands taxation. 
So that's very much well worth exploring. And I know that has made quite a difference to the cost benefits and decision making for some of our clients and has encouraged them to to put more of their expertise into the Netherlands as opposed to other places in Europe. I guess you know how this is going to go. What's what's the error that you've seen when people come out to the Netherlands? Yeah, I, I, I hate to be talking about terminating employees again, but it is very relevant. And in the Netherlands, you have to engage in conversations with your employees about termination, but you can't do that until you've filed some very necessary paperwork with the authorities first. So there's a specific process to follow if you want to terminate somebody. Also, because of this facility to be on 70% pay for two years of sick leave, it's not unusual for employees who are getting wind of a potential termination to go off sick for an extended period of time. So it can obviously cost the company quite a bit, particularly if they don't have the insurance coverage. I don't want to belign the the, the nation, but we have seen it happen. And obviously employees know their, their rights, so it can be a little bit difficult to manage. You have to be very careful about how you go about any of those sort of termination conversations. I think the underlying current that I've noticed in the conversation, kind of as we chose these three locations, is almost a progression of the employee focus, the the, you know, kind of to borrow a term from the US, the socialist purview of employment. And the Netherlands seems to be one where there's a lot of rights and protections for the employee. And it's not right or wrong in any measure. It's just very different from the US where it's a very employer-focused culture. And that continues on across Europe. So as we as we talk about the next bit of this conversation, you know, having that in mind for listeners is the cultural nature here is going to be a bit different. So Kiki, I wanted to ask you about some other names that you dropped at the beginning here of countries. There's two other very major economies. And if I were a full-on just numerically oriented person, I would say, well, obviously I'd go to the UK, Germany, or France. Those are the three biggest economies in Europe and therefore opening an office and sales office makes total sense there. But there's a lot that goes into those. There's, you know, obviously they're not English speaking by default and not all the regions of those places will be as comfortable with English, but also the same thing. HR employment law is going to be very different. Generally, what I see is people tend to go there maybe to Germany as a second place or something like that. So let me just start with with these countries. Let's go to France since it's closest to the UK for us in the Netherlands. It's kind of like right around the corner, I guess. It's a classically tricky job market, and I know it's very employee-centric. So what does that mean for a company? Mm, Yes, you are weighing up lots of pros and cons in each country. So some have a more harsher employment law environment and others have lower social security costs. So you have to kind of weigh up each one. France, by contrast, is generally more expensive and difficult in, in most respects, So, for instance, they have a higher social security cost in comparison to most other European locations. And that's because of the number of employee benefits the government subsidises. So it will cover unemployment benefit and compulsory retirement plans. And there's death and disability coverage and so on. And the employer social security costs can range 
from 40 to 45 percent for the employer, which is substantially higher than than most other places and obviously has to be factored into your budgeting and your plans for expansion. France also has a wide range of applicable councils where you have to have bargaining agreements and there's no choice but for companies to adhere to these, which leaves little room for any kind of flexibility. And they're usually defined by the group company and the industry sector. Employees working time, employees who work more than 35 hours a week must be paid overtime. So the first thing that you've got to do is have a system to record that and monitor it and to pay it. There are also what they call RTT days, which are additional days leave on top of the typical leave allowances. But it depends on the individual's contract terms and the collective bargaining agreements as to how much RTT days. But again, this is something that's going to have to be tracked and provided in the correct way. The exposures back to termination of employment, there is a way that you have to do it. The term grounds for termination have to be explained and employees can challenge the termination. So it's more common that the employee would take a company to, to court, although damages can be capped depending on the length of service. But the employee can claim more than one damage. So it's very difficult to, to terminate somebody in France unless they're still in their probationary period. So you just need to manage that very carefully. So there are a few other things. Benefits, France often has meal vouchers and commuting costs, which the company will also have to add on to the the overall compensation package. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like there's definitely the common thread of employee termination. It's a strange thread to to have to be on, but it's it's very important for the companies that listen to this. It's you know, fast moving, trying to make mistakes and grow and change and adjust and knowing where investments are going to be trickier to remove or to change is important. Last country in mind, it's more of a region, I guess, doc region, but specifically let's talk about Germany because as an American, I have to remember all these regions are actually made of different countries and there's different jurisdictions that go across Austria and Switzerland, but I want to just focus on Germany to start. What do you see as HR policy there? It's kind of a massive second largest economy for the region. I think it's probably a particularly interesting country. There's there's not a main city that everybody works in. It's not like a London or a Paris that has a majority of tech talent, but it's quite spread that way. But what do you see from an HR policy in, in Germany? Yeah, I mean, I think if we're going to be grappling with having flexibility around your workforce, whether you want to grow it quickly or or have the flexibility to reduce it quickly, yeah, Germany is a lot more employer-friendly than France. So they still have collective bargaining agreements um, and these still govern quite a bit of what, what happens in Germany. And these are also sector-dependent. But in broad terms, the environment for the employer is, is considerably easier. There's just one day of national holiday. The rest of the national holidays are are actually regionally observed holidays. So you have to track your employees according to their region. So there's a little bit of complication there. Can I just interrupt real quick? What does that mean? So does that mean if I'm in Berlin, my colleagues in Munich might have a different day off? Correct. Yes. In terms of public holidays, that's Mm -hmm. correct. And... Because of the collective bargaining agreements, then you do have to be a little bit careful if you're terminating employees. And there are special rules where you have more than 10 employees in Germany. 
So again, it's going back to taking the, the right advice. There aren't that many supplementary benefits uh, required in Germany. They're not very typical. And that's mainly due to the social security contributions provide a fairly wide and, and high level of employee benefits. So you won't have to put quite so much money into the compensation in that respect. So overall, a, a lot more positive experience, I would say. Mm. Nice. So I really appreciate this insight. It kind of paints to me almost like a grid-like structure, the checklist of these locations as companies think about where they're going to go, how they're going to open, where they're going to land as they come to Europe. And, and also quite as important is how they expand within Europe. You know, do you go to Germany after you open your first UK office or do you cover Amsterdam? What, what makes sense? Final question for you. And again, I appreciate your time for all this, but I think you might have mentioned it in passing, but I want to dive into it. What's something you'd want every U.S. company to consider when they come to Europe, regardless of where they're going to go? What's like a piece of knowledge you wish that they all had before they start the process? Mm, mm, good question. I would say take advice early on. It's never too early to start thinking about what you might want to do and start that process. And it's difficult because you might find a really good person and some talent in a particular location but it might not be the right location or that location doesn't make the offer particularly commercial for you so take that advice understand what you're getting yourself into and give yourself plenty of time to plan and ask those questions you don't want to be doing anything really quickly without having a chance to consider all of the options and possibilities and if you are planning to expand globally then make sure you have an appropriate budget for it and do it properly. So either you're going into global expansion and having a strategy which is well planned with a sensible budget, or you can do it fast and loose and get a bad reputation locally or a bad reputation with your new employees. So I think my main advice would be skimping on the process and advice won't be kind to you in the longer term. So just make sure you do it properly. Mm. That's very well said. And I echo that sentiment. It is an investment. It is a long-term plan that you're putting in. So no such thing really as dipping your toe by moving somebody or opening an office in the region. It's really a, it's a full-on dive. Well, Kiki, I, I thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate all the insight. It's super detailed and, and very interesting. And I think Ultimately, too, it adds a lot of value to anybody looking at any of these locations. So we really appreciate you and, and the time and the insight that you shared. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure.